Welcome to the CIO Evolution. In this podcast, we'll explore the Chief Information Officer's role in executing a new ongoing leadership imperative, digital transformation that promotes agility and resilience. How do CIOs upgrade legacy networks? What are the financial challenges CIOs face? And what are the security measures that are required in the new work-from-anywhere mobile and cloud-based world? Hello, it's Chris Jablonski, your host and director of CXO Revolutionaries and Community. Ready for some unconventional ideas? Next up in our executive series, hosted by Ben Fanning, is Claudinor Coelho, the chief AI officer at Zscaler. Prior to joining the company last November, Coelho led the creation of a zero-trust private cloud solution for the semiconductor manufacturing market in his role as Chief AI Officer and Senior Vice President of Engineering at Adventest. In this interview, you'll get a taste of Coelho's offbeat ideas, including why he prefers to hire people with viewpoints different than his, where AI and cybersecurity is headed, hint, are you ready to be superhuman? And to always remember, customers pay your bills. Through the power of stories and divergent thinking, the Stanford PhD channels his technical know-how to win over customers and teams. For him, virtually no idea is too complex or technical for a layperson, once simplified through the power of storytelling. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Welcome back to CXO Revolutionaries. My name is Ben Fanning, your co-host. This is brought to you by Zscaler. And today I have for you a treat with Claudio Coelho, who is the Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer here at Zscaler. Now, Claudio has also served as the Senior Leader at Adventist, Google, Jasper, and other organizations. He's a professor at Santa Clara University with a PhD from Stanford University. Claudio, welcome to CXO Revolutionaries. So you're known as a prominent tech disruptor. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's that that's on the internet. Oh, that that part <laughs> is the newest. <laughs> you're a, you're a prominent tech disruptor, and uh, when you joined Zscaler, that that was out there. Uh, what's your perception on what it is to be a tech disruptor? That's a very good question. Uh, actually, that's the first time that I hear that. Thank you very much, I guess. <laughs> the uh, internet is always right. Yeah. Correct? Uh, one of the things that I always try to do and, mm. and is to try to think dif- things differently mm. with a different par- pair of eyes. I, I, for example, uh, when you give me this chair, I say, well, maybe this chair can be used for something else. And when mm. you do that, we can actually create a new product and new markets that no one has thought about before. Wow. Oh, I like that. Always asking the question, what else? Yeah. And also, as in my research, you have a lot of articles that you've written and patents, right? And you've really prioritized uh, academic achievement along with being a business leader. Why has that been so important to you? Because uh, your question, again, it's like a very good question. Uh, I, I joke saying that I break the white career in the U.S. corporations. Because the U.S. <laughs> corporations, they usually say, oh, you have to come as an individual contributor and then you go to a management 
uh, hmm. uh, side to a management ladder or mm -hmm. you go to individual contributor ladder. But in my history, I learned because I can move very easily from management to leadership, like to technical leadership. Mm -hmm. To me, I consider that to be like an advantage for me. Wow. Especially in, in, in I'm sorry, no. especially no. In, in very fast paced industries. Yeah, very fast paced industries, changing literally overnight. When do you find time to do all this? You're going to laugh about this, but one of the, the joys of teaching at Santa Clara University is that they have they keep me on track to stay ahead of publications and what everyone is doing. Mm. And because I, I usually try to think about what is missing in the market, I end up finding spaces to create new products and, and new solutions, and that's when we publish or, or patent those solutions. Wow, I thought you might say with a smile, well, Ben, um, Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer, I use artificial intelligence to, to do all this. <laughs> Recently, I have been using like ChatGPT to, to help me write the articles too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, well, it's out there. You know, you really have been prolific in that. I think it's interesting to see an executive that, that prioritizes so much thought leadership. Do you write a lot at night? Do you do it on the weekends? What, uh, I try to be very, very uh, uh, focused when I'm working on the stuff hmm. to do. And I guess I just learned to be efficient because I want also to devote time to my family, right? Yeah. So being efficient becomes a very, very important. What was your first job and how does it influence your leadership today? Oh, that's a very good question. So my first job, actually, when I left the university, actually, I was doing my PhD at Stanford and I got a summer job at Fujitsu Labs of America. I was actually employee number two or three of Fujitsu Labs of America. And uh, at that time, I was it was like uh, just a summer internship. Hmm. And mm -hmm. I just figured out that they need some people to continue to do research. So I actually sold myself to them so that they should continue supporting my PhD at Stanford. Oh, okay. So my advisor came to me and he said, you see, I don't understand. People go to summer jobs and they return. You return with money <laughs> for the university. That's unusual. Yeah. Okay. And that's when I, I realized mm. that I had some different skills, mm. not wow. only technical, but I was able to, to do also some part of like speech selling like the, the something. So where did you learn selling from? Uh, I guess my best experience was at Jasper. At Jasper, we were doing formal verification tools. And I have to tell you, nobody wants to buy formal verification tools. Because you go to someone saying, do you want to buy formal verification tools? And people say, I need a PhD in math to do formal verification, which is finding bugs hmm. by proving that the software or the hardware does not have bugs. Okay. Proving right. mathematically. We convert the software into a mathematical equation, and then you prove that that equation is free of bugs, for example. Okay, all right. And what I learned is that when you go to sell something by doing that, you basically have to tell a story. You don't hmm. sell technology because remember what I told you, nobody wants to, to buy formal verification. So I would tell a story to customers and the, the customers or prospects, they would start nodding to me in the middle. So hmm. that means that they bought into the story. And okay. after that time, the sales was much, much easier. So okay. you're looking for the head nod. Yes. And that's when he knew you had the story down. Yes. So and, do you remember what the story is? Or, or was it that time? Or is that reaching way, 
way, way too far back. To I can tell you a story that I was talking to a customer yesterday. Can I talk about that story here? Let's see. We so, don't know until you tell it. Okay. So I was basically, <laughs> uh, uh, she was basically asking me like, why do we need AI in cybersecurity? Hmm. And then she... Good question. And then she's from a bank. And then I said, mm. let's suppose you have a, a chat bot that gives investment recommendations for a user. And you have already the user of the bank has already logged in. So you have qualified that him or her mm. is a real user of the bank. But you have a perpetrator that steals that prompt in the middle, inserts mm. something else. And then when the large language models from the chatbot comes back, comes with wrong investment ideas. Hmm. So the world is becoming a more difficult place to live. It used to be the case that I remember the first phishing email that I got in my life was the prince of Nigeria wants to share his wealth with us. I don't, everyone that I have met, they have received that email mm -hmm. and I see some nods here from everyone and everyone is laughing. So that means that everyone has got that email some, yes, sometime yes, in yes. their life. So that, it turns out that the last phishing email that I got, the two of the last phishing emails, one came from LinkedIn. Hmm. And it was someone who was, very, who was basically working in China and then all of a sudden jumped to work at Google and was trying to connect to me. Mm -hmm. And there's an FBI and Microsoft warning that people are trying to sneak in as like a, a, a experienced people and they try to send you a document after you connect to them. And mm -hmm. if you do that, then you're gone. Yeah. And, and well, you can imagine yep. because of those things, things are getting more and more complicated. So we need AI to help you detect and, and it, it's a battle that is always going to happen because at the same time, AI and internet brought a lot of good things for humankind. It also brought a lot of good things for the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And they're always using to try, they're trying to use that to try to attack and create new forms of attacks. So I'm experiencing that like a Pixar movie where it's like, hey, here's the, the cybersecurity, but then here's the storytelling underneath it. And as a leader, do you study storytelling or is it something you've sort of refined over time and or in your structure? What, one thing that I learned okay. over my time, maybe with a little bit of gray hair that I have right now, is that when I start asking some questions to people and people start asking questions, I, I, we usually always start talking about life, about something easy to talk about. And then I start building the story when the person gives me like some hints mm -hmm. on what's important to him or her. And that's when I give like the story that I can see that the, the people actually, they start nodding. Let me tell you another story. I was giving a presentation uh, at executives for microelectronics because of the Chips Act. I was in Phoenix doing a presentation from my previous company. And I was telling people how easy it is to attack a semiconductor manufacturing facility anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then I was comparing them to different types of attacks that people has done in different areas in the US, for example. And there was a lady on the front row of the, the, my presentation and she was on the phone. And, and she was on the phone and you know when you're doing a presentation to a wider audience, and, and you have to understand that originally I'm from Brazil, I speak Portuguese, but I speak with the hands just like Italians. So 
she was on the front row and when you are talking on a, to a wider audience and there's this person that is on the phone on the front row you stop looking at the audience and you start focusing on that person mm-hmm. and then i was saying why does she keep talking on the phone she can just leave and come back when she finishes so i was talking for over an hour after an hour talking about cybersecurity in semiconductor manufacturing she came back to me and said, I have to apologize. I got so scared about your presentation that I start talking to my husband, telling him to shut down the internet until we figure out what to do. Hmm. So you can see that shut. the message works. Right? So compelling. <laughs> so compelling that someone would pick up their phone and address our personal needs based on yes. the presentation. No, that's a very compelling story. Yeah. It also shows the power of when you're a leader and you and you're really believe in the power of your service or product, that it's important you find a, a powerful way to communicate it. Yes. And, and I think yeah. one another thing that helped me a lot is because I teach classes on, on very uh, complex subjects. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned over time to, to, you just give me a subject, give me a few minutes to think about what I have, I have to connect the ideas and I can start talking about this. Man, what a, what a superpower to have. I, I think that's, if you have to tell me, my greatest skill is to be able to do the connection and to create those stories over time. Oh, that's good. So you, you come to this more naturally. What do you do uh, when you're giving advice to rising leaders in terms of the skill set? Don't hire people like yourself. You have to, I'll give you an example for myself. I like to hire people mm. who will not agree with me. Mm. That's the only thing that I can tell you is that if you just hire people like yourself, you're going to have blind spots everywhere and you're going to fail miserably at in one of those blind spots. If you have people who disagree with you, you have to collect the feedback and overall do like a, a making like a, a assessment on what's the decision to, you have to take and then you are going to make a better decision mm. based on that. And people initially, they try to, they don't feel confident that they have to hire people that may be better or may be like a, the, the, to have a different viewpoint, but I always like to hire people who have different viewpoints mm-hmm. from me. And I take that very seriously. What's the one trait you'd like to instill in every employee and why is it important? Customer pays our bills. <laughs> That's the most <laughs> important thing that I teach, like the, the, that I teach people. Mm. I have worked in, in, in companies where R&D would say, no, no, the company pays our bills, it's not the customers. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. If the customers don't buy the, the product, then you're going to be out mm. of the job. Yeah, that's a real risk in, tech, in the technology world where I suspect we have brilliant people creating brilliant services and products, but maybe they don't resonate with a customer, no matter how brilliant, brilliant they are. Yes, and I always like to, to basically talk to customers and, and, and see if these stories make sense with customers. And don't take me wrong, I have failed miserably several times in my life, okay? And, and, but you have, you have to understand that you, you learn with their failures. You don't, you don't learn too much when you do it right. But, and when you make a failure and then you figure out why did I did wrong this time? And then you, next time, then you're engaging in a different situation or a similar situation then you're going to, to make sure that you don't make those same mistakes again. What's a favorite failure of yours that helped you grow? So my first f- failure as a manager, I went to, to, to my team, this was in 2000, 
I was a director for like R&D here in the US. And I went to the team and I said, I, I listened to what the pressure from upper management and sales saying, we need to do this and we need to deliver this at this time. I didn't listen to engineering and I told my team what they had to do. So they didn't do. And when we failed, I said, why do you guys didn't do it? And, and they came to me and said, you made the schedule, not us. So oh. it's your problem, not our problem. Mm. So right now, when I create a schedule, I listen to what upper management wants to do. I go with the team and discuss what is the compromise we have to make. Life is full of compromises, right? And then we make sure that what is the best that we can do in that a lot of time. And that's the, the, what we discuss back to upper management saying that's what we can deliver. Hmm. And how's that gone since you uh, made that change? It, it has ago. gone very well because uh, like in Jasper, I became like this SVP of engineering at Jasper. I took Jasper from bankruptcy. One, I was on the technical advisory board one day. I was in Brazil mm. teaching mm -hmm. university. And the, the CEO called me and I said, you know what, I want you to take over engineering. There is only one problem. There's no more engineering in the company. I had a fight <laughs> with the CTO, the CTO left, everyone left, oh. and you have to take over the entire engineering and you have to build the entire engineering from scratch. And by the way, the first thing you have to do, you have to visit all the customers, making sure they understand that the, the company did not collapse. <laughs> so my first month oh. as SVP of engineering, I was traveling to Sweden uh, because we had like a small team we just acquired in Sweden and hmm. they had not been even incorporated in the company when they realized that the entire engineering team was gone. I went to Japan, I went to Euro other countries in Europe, US, making like a road show, make sure that they knew someone was uh, running the company from engineering perspective. Ten years later, we we're sold by the largest multiplier. And one of the investors hmm. of the company came to me and he said, you created a big problem for us because we assumed that the company was already gone. So we put on our books as a loss, hmm. but you recovered the company and we had to rewrite the books backwards. It oh was an boy. investor from Europe. Wow. Oh man, what a story. What, for the listeners, what is a, well, let me ask you as this way. Growing up, did you ever think that you would be a chief artificial intelligence officer? No, I actually thought I was going to be a NASA engineer. <laughs> Maybe it's not far from it. <laughs> well, this this role as an executive, I mean, this is pretty new stuff, it right? Is. Why why like why is it so important to have a chief AI officer? Companies they have stories they have created over the years, with AI coming at a very fast pace. For mm -hmm. example, ChatGPT is just one year old. It, it, it was one year old yesterday. It's incredible. And yeah. people need to adjust the stories and I need to adjust the strategy and, and they need to move faster. Okay, I, when uh, I joined Zscaler, I told Sean saying cybersecurity industry as a whole, they do not have a history of connecting to the, the universities, to, to academia. And hmm. I, I I came from academia and I moved very well between academia and in industry. And I said, this industry is moving so fast that we need to have strong ties to academia. And we need to start thinking about five years from now, what you're going mm. to be doing may be completely different than what we have right now. So we need to strengthen ties to academia and, and especially in AI. 
environment. And, and you have to understand that the things that we're going to be doing two, three years, four years from now, it's going to be completely different than what they're doing right now. So is the premise that you're operating under is that universities are moving faster than the commercial world in AI? And they are, so not moving faster because for example, ChatGPT came from OpenAI. Mm -hmm. But OpenAI hired most, a lot of people from Berkeley, Stanford, and from other universities, right? Okay. So there has okay. been a lot of research being done in large language models hmm. and in, in, from, from academia. And what you're seeing right now in the industry, they are basically speeding up based on the resources that the academia generated over the past few years. Why does a cybersecurity company specifically need a chief artificial intelligence officer? We need to fine tune the speech to use AI. For example, what I mentioned mm -hmm. to you about the bank. And even when you talk about uh, large language models, they change completely the way we do things. Hmm. I'll tell another story. So suppose that you want to order a pizza on Uber Eats. You're here at the hotel, you want to eat a pizza. It's happened before, I think. Yeah, but you have to understand that you want to have to order a pizza in the following way. I want a gourmet pizza, margarita, 20 minutes because I'm hungry. If you go to Uber Eats, you're going to say, first, I have to select pizza. Then you're going to select which pizza place you're going to order. And you don't know if they are gourmet or not yet. So we're going to click and say, oh, that's not a gourmet. Go back. Mm. And then click in another one and say, yeah, that, that one may be good. And then say, oh, but it doesn't have margarita. So you go back again and you select the third one. And then you say, let me see how long it takes to, for me to get the pizza. And then you say, oh, it's like one hour and a half. It's not going to work. So you go back again and you start again until you figure out mm -hmm. what you want to do. Mm -hmm. With a large link, so you see, that's a UIOX design on how you interact with a product or with a software. Now, imagine this with a large language model. Hmm. You basically write, I want a gourmet pizza delivered in 20 minutes. Uh. You don't care about what it does, but you do know that it needs to create like a, a to select for you something that has all the traits that you, you specified but without having to go back and forth in the interface. So it, it changed the way that we interact with systems and softwares. And people are not prepared for this. People are still mm. thinking about, even when you talk about ChatGPT, people are still talking about only ChatGPT, but they do not realize that ChatGPT or whatever other large language model you're talking about, it needs to connect to systems to add intelligence. Mm. When it connects to the systems to give intelligence, that's when you, you see the whole new type of experience that we're going to be seeing moving forward. And so how does that affect cybersecurity? I want to basically to be able, uh, I'll just give you like a support case. There's a problem with the customer and you, you have to understand that the customer sees a bunch of data, sees a, a, and we, there's an attack going on. There's a, a large amount of data. So we want to be able to use a large language model, for example, to analyze and to summarize the data so that a user can basically analyze the data quicker and, and start shutting down doors because we still want to give the power to the user to say shut down or do not shut down. Number one, we want to be able to the user to ask questions about what's going on with the network, with the whole 
infrastructure mm. without having to click buttons because remember it's just like the pizza thing yes okay and, and there's a yeah. whole new set of interaction that we're going to allow people to do and eventually if you have a large language model eventually you can even put voice activated right mm. you can order your pizza from your car talking to the cell phone instead of just typing in so it's the accessibility to your own security network by voice, and you can use, I'll say, normal person words versus technological programming to understand what's happening inside your network. Without having to program. Without having to program. Basically communicating yeah. plain, plain English what yeah. you want to do. Yeah, yeah, wow. So speaking to the leaders out there right now, you're obviously seeing what's coming and have some inklings on what's coming. What do leaders inside companies need to do right now to be prepared for what's coming with AI? So I think the first thing that people need to realize is that we need to build systems that turn humans into superhumans. Before we start talking, a lot of companies are saying, oh, we're going to eliminate jobs, we're going to eliminate jobs. Actually, no. We're going first to turn humans into superhumans. And even in this step that we turn humans into superhumans, we're going to realize that the data that we have inside the companies is a piece of crap. <laughs> okay, I'll give you an example. When cloud companies, they promised you that you, could, you would not need to delete data and you could just start storing the data and leave for later to decide. Number one, now you have old and new stuff together. Hmm. I was implementing a large language model chatbot to support, and the first questions people ask me is this, like this functionality does not exist anymore in our software. And I said, there is a document somewhere in our whole infrastructure that says that that functionality still exists. So hmm. we need to fix the documentation part first before you come to me and say that there is a problem with AI. AI just replicated what's already there. Number two, AI and large language models, they are trained with very well-written books. Remember, like, the authors uh, were complaining about the method copying bits and pieces of paragraph excerpts from their own books. Mm -hmm. But those books from authors, they were very well-written. Remember when you took your first writing lesson, people came to you and said, you need first to write the, the topic sentence, and that topic sentence becomes a paragraph. Sure. And yeah. your expectation from a large language model is, it, is from seeing the paragraph and extract the topic sentence. Now, if you look at technical documentation, they do not have well-written paragraphs in general. They have one mm -hmm. sentence and then a piece, a piece of uh, code, mm -hmm. one sentence and, and like a picture, and that becomes completely unsuitable for the large language models to mm -hmm. be able to extract any useful data. So I published on, on LinkedIn a few months ago uh, something that was saying the world needs more librarians. And I was not referring to librarians, although 90% of the people who liked my posts, they said, I'm a teacher at a high school and I know we need more teachers, librarians, and, and books. And I was not referring to that. I was, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually referring to we need people who organize data in a better way that is more suitable for large language Take models. the existing information and make it where it can be fed into AI appropriately. Yes, and we just yeah. created new positions yeah. with that that did not exist before. Okay, yeah, this is a new job. It's a new a job. A new role. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you say superhuman, someone's probably listening like, 
what does he mean by that? Like, what does it mean to be superhuman facilitated through artificial intelligence? I always like to refer to the Aliens 2 movie when Sigourney Weaver is fighting aliens and she basically goes into this mechanical thing oh, and, yeah. and she grabs the alien and throw away from the, the, the yeah. spaceship. Yeah. But people recently, they told me like this, no, no, there's Avatar. You should basically mention Avatar and say, yeah, there's the Okay, Avatar like one. Avatar too. <laughs> Put your Avatar on and go with it. You, you yeah. can fly, jump in the ocean. And then that's it. It, it makes it gives you like super skills. And when I was at my previous company, we had this piece of hardware that was extremely hard to train a new person to use it. So the idea that when I created this chatbot for support and, and for, it was initially for AEs, application engineers, and the idea is that even if the application engineer was a very junior application engineer, I was joking saying under the table with a customer, he was he would have like a cell phone. And when the customer said something, he would ask questions to the chat, huh. get the answer, huh. and then he would basically okay. spit out the answer. And the guy on the other side would be very impressed with his own skills, his or her skills. Superhuman. All right. So just a couple more inter interviews or a couple of questions here. On the flip side, what is the thing that concerns you most about AI right now? What concerns me most about AI? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think I, I'm against regulation from governments on AI. I was at the World Economic Forum at AI Summit, and a lot of people are talking about regulation. Mm -hmm. In general, I'm against regulation, but we need to have like ethical use of AI. Unfortunately, when you're talking about ethical use, we hit like a problem because if everyone is ethical, but there is one place that is not ethical, and everyone uses the service or buy products from that place that is not ethical, then that creates a problem. It proliferates because, yes. it, because that information feeds the AI. AI has bias. Yeah. Yeah. And, bias, and it, yeah. it basically has the, 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 it has the, same, the same bias that we as humans have, okay? So originally I'm from Brazil, so I'm going to talk about Latinos. So if the AI was trained saying that all Latinos do not pay bills, when I feed information saying that Claudio Noir is a Latino, what is the conclusion that AI is going to have? Does mm -hmm. not Claudio Noir does not pay bills. So and that's something that we have to be constantly aware that AI is not perfect and it reflects what human has done in history. And think about that. There's some publications that said you're going to run out of text to train large language models next year. Hmm. If we're talking about all production that has happened in history, we're talking about a lot of those productions have a lot of bias. And because the information's old. Because the information is old. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if that happens, it is that we're going to be training systems and we're going to be training AI that will have a lot of bias because it, it's just been like a, maybe 30 years that we start worrying more about bias, mm -hmm. okay? But there has been like a whole history before that that people did not care about anything, okay? Mm. And you are going to use those systems, those data to train the AI. So that bias will carry over on any type of system that you create. So starting to land the plane here, that's a very interesting point about the bias. 
What's your parting thought for our listeners today? For what? What's, what's your last thought or parting message for, for the listeners today? Yeah, I, I think that uh, you should not be afraid of AI, okay? AI came here, it's going to create a lot of good things. It's probably going to, to create uh, a lot of friction in, in the world because never in the history of the world a technology basically came so fast. Industrial revolution came like over several months, several years before, so people had time to adjust. And I think a lot of people, they are afraid that this new technology like the, the AI, it, it's coming at a very fast pace and people are afraid of that. Mm. But we have to, to embrace it. There's no way to, to avoid embracing it. And we have to create a new systems that are going to make it more inclusive to everyone without creating regulation because regulation is not, I don't think that's going to work, but, but if you create like a way that, that's why I like to think about uh, uh, superhumans instead of saying you're going to eliminate people from doing support. No, I want my support people to be a superhuman. And I think it, when you think about that, you, you think about that, that, that AI is going to help build a new world and make everyone better. All right, well, here's to AI making us superhuman. Thanks for coming on Six So Revolutionaries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CIO Evolution. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find more episodes along with other podcasts on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.